Hello and welcome back to Benaiah, Mighty Man of God by P.H. Thompson, an audiobook. This is chapter 29. Now a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. 2 Samuel 15.13 For three long years Absalom remained with his grandfather, Talmai, the king of Geshur. Although David mourned for his son every day, often wondering aloud how long he planned to stay away, Benaiah appreciated his absence. He didn't trust him. In fact, David spoke more of Absalom the murderer than Amnon the murdered son. While Amnon was no upright character, considering he had raped his half-sister, he didn't deserve to be murdered by his own brother. Absalom returned to Jerusalem after Joab hatched a plan to ingratiate himself to the king because he perceived that David longed for Absalom to return. Benai was surprised by this, since he knew Joab cared for Absalom least among all the king's sons, but if something would be expedient for himself and his future, he'd even do something as distasteful as this. David didn't know it at the time, but one of the daily cases he judged had a hidden meaning. Joab had paid a woman of Tekoa to dress in mourning apparel and come before the king with a made-up story. She cried out, My king, please help me. The king said to her, What's the problem? She answered, I'm a widow, alone with two sons. They were fighting out in the field, and because there was no one to break them apart, one son was killed by the other. A sad story indeed, Benaiah thought. Now the whole family is against me. They told me to hand over the son who killed his brother so that they can put him to death for murder, since they are the avengers of blood in our family. But that would mean that my late husband will have no heir, and the flame of life will be extinguished. No one will be able to care for my husband's property, and it will pass to a stranger. My husband's name will pass into obscurity. David said to the woman, Go home, and I'll take care of things for you. He needed time to consider the matter and possibly consult with his advisers. But then the woman of Tekoa said to the king, Let the blame be on me, my lord and king. You and your kingdom are innocent. David nodded. If anyone speaks against you, bring him to me. They won't bother you again. He was offering his protection while the matter was being sorted. The woman clasped her hands. Please, promise me by God that you won't let them take the life of my other son. She had a legitimate fear that one of her relatives would come after her son in the meantime. As God is my witness, no one will harm even a hair on your son's head, David promised. Then the woman was emboldened to say, May I say one more thing to the king? David nodded his assent for her to proceed. Why has the king done the same thing? By saying these things, you show you are guilty because you've not brought back the son who you forced to leave home. Understanding lit David's eyes. She was speaking about Absalom, but making it seem like Amnon was killed unintentionally, like the brother in her fictional story. Surely David would see that. We will all die and be like water spilled on the ground, unable to be gathered up again. You know God forgives people and provides a place of safety for them to flee to. I knew you would be able to help me because you are like an angel of God, discerning between truth and error. David leaned forward and said to the woman, You must answer truthfully the question I ask of you. Please ask the question, my king. Did Joab put you up to this? David said. The woman answered, you are right, my lord. General Joab did tell me to say these things, hoping to bring about a change of affairs if you saw the situation from a different point of view. But you have the wisdom of God and will no doubt do the right thing. 
Then the king summoned Joab and said to him, All right, I'll do it. Go and bring back the young man Absalom. Benaiah was surprised when proud Joab fell to the ground on his face and thanked the king. Joab said, Now I know you're pleased with me, because you've done as I asked. David was perplexed at David's image of his son Absalom. He still referred to him as a young man, even though he was already 31. At what point would David see him as a man responsible for his own actions? And what did Joab have to gain by encouraging David to end his estrangement with Absalom? So Joab traveled to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. However, the king stipulated, Absalom must go back to his own house. He cannot come to see me. So Absalom remained on house arrest. This didn't sit well with Absalom, though, and after a time he tried to talk with Joab, but he wouldn't come when called. So Absalom ordered his servants to set one of Joab's barley fields on fire. When Joab challenged him about his rash decision, he said, I wanted to send you to the king to ask him why he even bothered to have me return from Gesher. I can't see him, so I might as well have stayed there. I demand to see the king, but if he thinks I'm guilty of some crime, let him execute me himself. When David heard that, he allowed Absalom to come to the palace. Benaiah didn't trust the prince. He still wasn't sure he hadn't also intended to assassinate the king that day when he murdered his brother. He was only hindered because David refused to go. Absalom made a great show of obeisance to the king, bowing low before him with his face to the ground. Then the king kissed him and welcomed him back. But Benaiah regarded Absalom with suspicion. Soon Absalom, his father's favorite son, became the people's favorite as well. David remarked how there seemed to be fewer cases to judge lately. Benaiah didn't think there had ceased to be strife in the country, so he decided to investigate. As Benaiah arrived at the palace, he passed by the city gate where business was conducted. As people passed by there on their way to see the king for his judgment in a dispute, Absalom, who had arrived early, would intercept them, find out the details of the case, and reassure them that they had a legitimate claim. Benaiah overheard him say, Look, you all have legitimate concerns, but the king is far too busy and distracted with other affairs to see to the issues of the common man. Then he sighed dramatically. I wish someone would make me a judge in this country. Then I could help everyone who comes to me with a problem. I would be able to get them a fair solution to their concern. When the people began to complain about the king being too busy to hear them, he'd say, I would be honored to hear your civil cases. So the people brought their cases to Absalom. Benaiah would have liked to challenge Absalom publicly about his behavior, but for David's sake he refrained and instead reported it to the king. But again, no action was taken. Absalom's wife had borne him three sons and a daughter, whom he named Tamar after his sister, but tragically all of his sons died at a young age. Since he would never have any heirs to carry on his branch of the family line, he commissioned a monument to be built to commemorate his life. It was set up in the King's Valley and was known as Absalom's Monument. When Benaiah heard where it was placed, he thought, How arrogant of Absalom to assume he'll be king. Benaiah suspected that becoming the next king had been on in his mind from an early age, but more so once he murdered his eldest brother. The second son, Daniel, sometimes called Kiliab, who was David's son by Abigail, was sickly and not likely to survive. That left Absalom next in line to the throne. He must not have heard that God ordained Solomon to follow David. 
Perhaps it was for the best, so the young Prince Solomon would remain safe. Rumors reached the palace that the populace had turned from David to Absalom. That was concerning enough, and David had been warned earlier, but now talk of conspiracy was confirmed. David changed from thinking only the best about Absalom to fearing him. He didn't even dare to confront him, which fell in line with David's manner of dealing with family disputes. Instead, he gave the order, and he and the royal family and all the palace household staff fled for their lives from Absalom. Joab, the mighty men, and hundreds of soldiers also followed David. He only left behind ten of his concubines. Absalom knew better than to try to usurp power in Jerusalem, where the king dwelt. Instead, he gathered a large group of important people to Hebron, where David reigned seven years, and then sounded a trumpet and had people shout, Absalom is king in Hebron. The original group of 200 went along innocently, but because they were men of influence, it attracted more and more people to the conspiracy. Absalom had even managed to draw away Bathsheba's grandfather, Ahithophel, who had turned against David because of David's adultery with Bathsheba. Because of the large number of people who fled and the haste required, David told them only to take the essentials. David had encouraged his loyal friend, Hushai the Archite, to stay behind and act as a spy and tell Absalom, My king, I am your servant. I am faithful to whomever the people of Israel choose. As I served your father, now I will serve you. By being close to him, you may be able to disagree with any advice from Ahithophel and make it useless. He then arranged for him to relay information to David through the sons of the priests. It was through Jonathan and Ahimaaz that David heard what happened after they left. At the advice of Ahithophel, David's once royal loyal advisor, Absalom set up a tent on the palace roof. He took each of David's remaining concubines into the tent, one at a time, and slept with them. What a disgusting way to send a message that David's kingdom was now his. David ran his hands through his wavy hair. Is this not what Nathan told me would happen because I took another man's wife? Benaiah recalled the prophet's words clearly, as they had rung in his head every day for the past ten years, pondering their meaning. I'll bring trouble against you from someone in your own family, and I'll take your wives and give them to another man before your very eyes. He'll sleep with them in the open. Your sin was done in secret, but the punishment will be out in public for everyone in Israel to see. Now he understood. The whole country wept as the royal family fled for their lives. The king himself crossed over the brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. The priests, Zadok and Abiathar, and the Levites fled with them, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. David said to Zadok, Take the Ark of God back into Jerusalem. If God shows me favor, he'll bring me back to see the tabernacle and it again. But if not, then let him do whatever he wants to me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the Ark of God back to Jerusalem and remained there. After two days' travel, David's company was running out of supplies. Then they saw Mephibosheth's servant, Ziba, approach with a saddled donkeys, loaded down with about 200 loaves of bread, clusters of raisins, summer fruits, and skins of wine. David eyed Ziba with suspicion. What do you intend to do with these provisions? Ziba bowed low before the king. The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. 
The bread and fruit are for the servants to eat, and the wine is refreshment for whoever begins to feel weak in the desert. While not a lot, it would sustain them for the day at least. David looked beyond Ziba as if searching for someone. Where is Mephibosheth, your master? Why is he not here with you? Ziba looked to the ground, but Benaiah thought it was because he didn't want to look David in the eye as he lied to him. He is still in Jerusalem. I heard him say, Now the Israelites will give my father's kingdom back to me. So I fled to find you, my king. David reeled back in shock. Benaiah could hardly believe it either. This was Jonathan's son, the one David had taken into the palace and cared for as his own. Had he really defected to Absalom, hoping to turn the kingdom back to the descendants of Saul? It didn't seem likely, not from what he knew of Mephibosheth's character all these years. He was loyal to David. If anyone was not to be trusted, it was Ziba. Ziba had always seemed self-serving. Even now, he was giving up Mephibosheth's location and speaking disparagingly of him to the king while building himself up, as though he were being generous. In spite of the fact that there was no evidence to support Mephibosheth's defection other than Ziba's testimony, David surprised him by saying to Ziba, All right, I'll give you everything that belonged to Mephibosheth. Ziba said, I humbly bow before you. I pray I'll always be able to please you. When Ziba caught Benaiah's glare, he quickly averted his eyes. Benaiah didn't care. Let Ziba know he was watching him. Keep listening for chapter 30.